Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gatsi. The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. It has been a minute since I've recorded a podcast. A lot of stuff has been unfolding in my life, but I feel that I'm back and I'm about to get back into the groove, and we're going to have a couple of really cool episodes coming out in the next couple of weeks. I'm officially going to start to approach this with the same care that uh, I give dreams, you know, and doing this podcast is something that I want to do for the rest of my life, and I'm going to start showing up to it in a different way. So I appreciate you guys for being as patient as you have been since the last episode, And there will be episodes coming out every week for the foreseeable future. So today we have on Adrienne Ellison. This is a woman that I met in Fit for Service last year. And the moment I met her and she was a member of the Mastermind, I knew she is going to be a force of nature in and around my life for the next foreseeable future. And, you know, fast forward about a year and a half later, and she is still a member. She is also a lighthouse coach, which is kind of like an in-between coaching tier and fit for service. She's also created her own mastermind. She is a relationship coach, and she hosts her own events, and she's crushing it. And um, you will feel the sincerity and the intensity of her personality on this podcast. So... I hope that you enjoy the myth of Adrian Ellison. And on a side note, uh, these podcasts are brought to you by my journaling course and the newsletter. Uh, those are the two things right now that I use to start to feed and you know keep sustenance inside of the organism that is the company Cathedra, you know, because it costs money to produce these podcasts. So if you want to support, check out the journaling course, get on the newsletter. Share both if you feel like they could genuinely be of service to people that you know. And as always, thank you for listening. I love you guys. Adrian, I can finally say that I've gotten you on the podcast. We've been trying to do this for, what, 16 months now. Things have arisen over and over. And now it seems to be time for people to hear your myth. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited, and the dance has been intense. I think we should definitely talk about why we haven't been able to yeah. get on the podcast. Let's start there. <laughs> what happened, or I guess tell your version of the story of the first time that we were supposed to do a podcast, and I'll share my version of that story. Yeah, the, the version that I'm going to own is that <laughs> I maybe had only ever done one podcast, and it was like you know my friend's podcast that had like 50 subscribers, and I was really excited about it. And then you had asked if I wanted to be on your podcast based on some of the conversations we'd had. 
And so I come up to on it. I'm stoked. I'm sitting in this. And you like, don't live in Austin, by the way. You're coming from out of town. Yeah. Yeah. So I was sitting in this massage chair right outside of Aubrey's office. And I'm just waiting and I'm waiting and 45 minutes goes by. And I'm like, man, I know this guy's really busy, uh, but I want to still, you know, I'm just going to wait and be patient. It's not like I have anything else going on. And so I shoot you a text. I'm like, hey, I'm out here ready when you are, exclamation mark. And, uh, and then I get a call from you. And you're like, what are you waiting on? And I'm like, we scheduled to do a podcast. And you hang up on me. And I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. So I had to step in. Um, (laughs) I had taken a very large amount of mushrooms that day. I believe it was a Sunday, It was LSD. It was LSD. And was it a Sunday or was it? It was a Sunday. And had we had the fit for service weekend that weekend? Yep. Okay. So I was overwhelmed by, it was the first weekend that we had ever done for fit for service. It was my first time having to be a coach and just having to manage all that energy and then also try to show up in the way that the story that I was telling myself about who I should be to be worthy to be a coach, like there was a lot of pressure on myself. And on Sunday, I was like, I'm just going to take LSD and just be in nature and just totally disconnect from everything. And it felt so good and I had such a great experience. And then the moment I get home after being out in nature for like four hours, I get a phone call. Like my mind had been so disconnected from any of my obligations, anything that was connected to a calendar or a phone. And to hear that some, like I'm never late to anything. Like it's like a, it's like a part of like uh, my self-worth as I feel like I have to be on time. I never miss like appointments or agreements that I make with people. And to base to still be deep in the medicine and to hear that someone that I respected, I had totally blown off. The fucking fear response in my body, like it 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 was the most fear that I had felt in like a year and a half. And the last time I felt I could fear, tell. fear that deeply was when I had taken a ten times more than I thought of an edible. I mean, to have your initial response be to just hang up and just abort shit like the ship, just like you cannot. Um, I I just was like, (laughs) I just feel, I just, I remember in the moment being like, "Mm, this was, this is awkward, but like at the same time, like whatever. And then you call me back. I mean, it felt like 10 minutes, but it was probably 30 seconds. And you're like, listen, I'm on the largest dose of LSD I've ever taken. This is like my first day off in a year and a half. I'm so sorry, but I can't do the podcast today. Do you want to meet me at a coffee shop? Which I feel like you didn't actually want to do. It was more of like- It was out of guilt. It was definitely out of guilt. And I was like, yeah, I do. And why don't I just take some mushrooms too? So I meet you. We go to this cafe. It's really dope. I ate hot wings. Um, We journeyed. We had some crazy conversations about God. And it ended up being like one of the coolest days of my whole year. I remember going home like really high and really full on that experience. So water under the bridge. Yeah, it took me about three hours to bring my nervous system back to baseline. Um, What happened the second time that we tried to do a podcast? I feel like this is like time number five, truthfully. And there was like a couple of random things where the schedules didn't work out. But there's the other thing that happened where we scheduled and both showed up was actually a Zoom. I was in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
it was right around the time that I was starting to really wake up in my spiritual awakening of like, holy shit, you're living a life that makes absolutely no sense based on your soul's calling and you are not feeling uh, light. You're feeling really heavy because you're doing all of these things that you know you don't really want to be doing out of scarcity and obligation. And so what happened is I had just come off of this really dope trip with you guys and you know Austin and I'm learning and it's like, okay, we're going to do this podcast. And I get really excited. And at the time I was in a relationship with my, my ex-partner and I'm telling him, I run upstairs and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm getting ready for a podcast with Godzi. I'm so excited. And he's like, oh, cool. What's the podcast about? And I'm like, well, I don't really know. It's called The Myths That Make Us. And it's all about the stories that you create in your life and how they affect you know everything that you do and how your life lines out. And I'm just like, I'm just so excited because I know that I don't know what's going to come up, but I know it's going to be so much truth. And he was like, that's so awesome. Just make sure you don't tell them, you know, any, don't share anything that would affect me. <laughs> no podcast. It was a very pivotal moment in yeah. both my soul, in my heart, and in my relationship. And we ended up doing a Zoom call for where you hold space for me for at least half an hour while I just cried because that moment I realized that I was actually for the first time in my life so fucking ready to dive into my truth. And that the only reason that I could not was actually no longer any part of myself, but the partner that I was with at the time. And since then he has dove into truth and it's been, you know, such a dope journey together to go from that to this. But yeah, that was a hard one as well. And now we're finally here in person, (laughs) essentially a year and a half later. Yeah. And um, it only took me moving to Austin. Right. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you so much. One of the things that I want to articulate before we get into the podcast, like into the questions is, you are one of the people that is the most intense at doing whatever she sees as the most effective way to heal. And when I first met you, you were like at the height of what you could be stuck inside the acorn shell of you know playing all the games that the ego wants to play. And then the moment you got turned on, to this idea of, you know, like there's a whisper inside of you. It's going to ask you to break yourself over and over and over again. Um, One of the things that I feel like sets me apart from most people that I know is how tenacious I am in listening to the whisper. And I see that reflected in you to a degree that I don't see in almost anybody. And so it's cool, first off, as just a coach for Fit for Service, to see the radical transformation in you since when I first met you last year in Austin. And I can see, and it's also a reinforcement to my personal like healing philosophy, which is the most effective way to help somebody is to get them to a point where they honor that wisdom inside of themselves. And then their ego bows to their whisper and then the whisper takes care of the rest. Mm-hmm. And I see you as evidence of that. Thank you. And what I will reflect back to you is that that is where I find the most fulfilling and free friendships is when I am able to sit with you and acknowledge your pain and know without a shadow of a doubt that you have all the tools and resources to clean up your own shit. And I don't feel responsible for carrying the weight of your journey. So I actually get to be an observer and be in like almost like a pleasurable, it's it's like when, you know, when, when somebody like falls on their face and you know they're not hurt, but it's fucking hilarious. 
it's almost that kind of energy when you have friends that are going through heavy things, but you also know that the heaviness of everything else they've ever had in their life has led them to this point of like ultimate freedom. And you're simultaneously laughing while so excited for what that like for sure. suffering is going to bring for them because you know that, that they, they appreciate and honor suffering in a way that some of your other friends don't, that you feel like, you oh, fuck, and you cringe for them. And you sometimes want to rescue them and overextend yourselves. And so what reflects back to me with you is I've actually held space for you several times during suffering. And I have never felt anything but excitement during those moments. And I've never walked away from those feeling any heavier. I've always felt either like more aware of my own self or just like almost like, yes, like fucking, I'm so excited. What is this going to be? It's almost like the buildup. I'm like watching a movie where you're starring in it and I love you as the actor. Yeah. And so that's to me is like just such an extension of like the type of friend that I want to be for other people and also the, the type of people I want to attract into my inner circle. Yeah, what I hear from that is when you can feel the person in front of you has the right story, that when they go through something hard, like for me, I try to get the conversation to the point where I can look them in the eye while they're crying and say congratulations, and then they laugh because mm-hmm. they get it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the way. So with that uh, articulated, to give people a sense of who they're listening to, let's say that you just did something that puts you into a deep flow state, and then you get done doing it, and then I come up to you, I don't know who you are, and I ask you, who are you and what do you do? What is the thing that you were just doing that puts you into that flow state? And how would you answer those two questions? Well, the thing that I was just doing that puts me into that flow state is definitely mushrooms. And that will always be my answer. And sometimes I wish that it was like a more graceful answer. Um, but what I feel like flow state is to me is the ability to both see pain and also see pleasure existing, but not one without the other. And being in the neutrality of like accepting both and also feeling like your desire for both, right? And so one thing that I go through every time I'm in a mushroom ceremony is that state of like neutrality where I'm in this like grandmother energy of sitting around, let's say a table. And let's say that I'm like in a great grandmother energy. I have my children there, my children's children there, and my children's children there. And Raging from ages of you know infants all the way to 60, 70 years old, because I plan to live a really long time. And what I'm seeing in this space is people at every fucking stage of life, every ego, every story, people in victimhood, people that have just come out of victimhood. And instead of looking at how much I've affected all of these people and they've affected each other and like we've passed on things and we've like all I can really see is just beauty and the experience that everyone is going through and like such such deep honor of everyone's human experience and not feeling the need to rescue a single fucking one of them because I myself have gone through such a journey that I when I look at them I see their pleasure in the future and I'm able to just sit in such grace and peace as people are arguing or disagreeing and running all over and some people are a little too loud and some people are not speaking up and it doesn't change that I just love every single person in that room including myself and I'm also in an acknowledgement of what it took for me to get to the place that I'm at so I'm in a deep practice of gratitude at the same time that is what I experience as flow state yeah. because I feel like anything could be created for me in that moment because I'm so open and my heart is so open both to pleasure and to pain because I just recognize that 
they're both mine to have, you know, and to experience. And you haven't told me your name yet or what you do. Ooh. Well, my name is Adrian Ellison, and I am a coach for self-healing and relationships, specifically more unconventional and conscious relationships. So I have a platform called the Alpha's Project that I created while I was in fit for service with you as a coach. And that platform helps me to host workshops, retreats. I have a retreat coming up um, that I love to do. And those are really based on kind of everything around self-healing. So reprogramming the way that your brain creates stories about your life, uh, helping people with creating self-awareness so that they can get out of specific loops that are really detrimental to their quality of life. Um, A little bit of like integration coaching. I think integration is super important. So whether that be somebody who did a psychedelic journey and they need help putting the pieces together or integrating what they're learning in real time while in a relationship with a family and, you know, everybody else is kind of frozen in time. And then I also teach on like boundary work and inner child wounding. And I mean, it's, it's really just simple. It's everything that would stop you from being able to live in full radical self-expression and unconditional right. love. I'm just trying to find the, the, the secrets inside of a person and what makes them tick and very much like you lead them to the whisper of their soul uh, because I'm not attached whatsoever to the way their journey plays out. I just really want people in my life that can experience pleasure to the depths that I can so that we can just do it together. So, How would your best friend describe you and what you do? Oh, man. I would... Mm. My best friend. I would say my best friend is definitely Ciara. And she would probably describe me as really deep and really intentional and very intense. Um, And she would say that she feels inspired by my ability to express whatever I feel like I need to express uh, and have awareness of how it affects other people as I'm expressing. And how would she describe what you do in the world? How? Oh, is that the question? That's this question. That's this question. <laughs> She's been a part of so much of it. She's literally the inspiration behind so fucking much of what I do. And so she would probably just say that I curate experiences for people to do deep soul work and, and dance with other people's deep soul work. <laughs> How would your closest romantic partner describe you and what you do in the world? Oh, well, I don't have a romantic partner right now. So I'm trying to think of... They would describe me as one of the most difficult mirrors of their lives. Someone who holds them to a standard that is very uncomfortable most of the time um, while reflecting back things to them that they don't see everywhere else in the world. Um, But that when I choose to be so can be one of the most compassionate mirrors and nurturing mirrors that they've also ever seen. How would whoever your male caregiver slash father energy describe who you are and what you do? Mm, I think, I mean, my dad was a simple, simple man with simple words. So he would, he would just say that I was really special and that I wasn't afraid to take life by the balls. (laughs) I feel like that would be pretty much it. (laughs) And how would your mother describe who you are and what you do? That's a harder one. You know, my mom was the person that danced with my shadow the most. So she would say that I'm a very I'm very capable of anything when I put my mind to it, but not without a fight, not without a lot of struggle and hard-headedness and uh, a little bit of back talk. <laughs> How would God or source or universe 
describe who Adrian is and what is she doing? Probably also so capable but afraid to like fully commit. Um, like always searching for something that's outside myself, good and well knowing there is nothing outside myself. <laughs> and I feel like God would, if God had a voice in this way and a little bit of a humor would say it's a little painful watching the process. <laughs> what is your first memory? Man, my first memory, to be honest, is not a great one. I feel like it's, yeah. it's definitely the mark of my relationship with my dad. I was in the bathtub with my sister. We're six years apart. She's older. We just like, my parents had a big bathtub, like a jacuzzi, and we would play like Barbies and uh, whatever else in there. My dad would come and he would usually play the guitar in the bathtub for us, and it was really dope. But during the summers, my dad worked really, really long hours. And so summertime, it was like my mom would be cooking dinner. My dad would get home at like, I don't know, whatever time the sun had gone down and he was able to stop spraying crops. And um, me and my sister were in the bathtub, and I had to have been two, no older than three, um, because just the age difference. And one of the things that triggered my dad the most with, with us was how he thought we perceived him. So for instance, like if he thought that we perceived him as a bad father, he would kind of just lose it. If he didn't feel like he could, had control or a grip, he had a lot of anxiety and a lot of trauma. And so I just remember one night, like I was like, when my mom says I was a difficult child, like she's not fucking joking. Like I was a terrible child. And there's a whole story of like, I'm adopted. So I came with trauma, you know, prepackaged in this sweet little baby to another family who didn't speak the same trauma language, which is so interesting in and of itself to like unwind that now as an adult. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I punched my sister or something. I did something fucking rude. And right around that time was like when my dad was like pulling into the driveway. My mom was like trying to pull dinner off. I, my sister's screaming. I, I'm screaming. I'm already, I'm already intelligent enough to start manipulating the scenario. And I remember this manipulative energy. My mom comes in the bathroom. She's like, what is going on? Like I'm in the middle of dinner or something like that. And your dad is just about to be home. You guys are going to be in trouble or, or something that made me re realize that like I fucked up because... I did something at the wrong time, the right thing at the wrong time kind of thing. And when my dad enters, storms into the bathroom, already very triggered, already feeling unstable, like he must be such a bad man, a bad father to come home to a household that is not happy. His children are not happy. His wife is not happy. And he comes in, you know, what is happening? And I lie and I say, she hit me. And I remember this memory so well that I've joked about it my entire life. And without really much thought, my dad rips my sister up butt naked out of the bathtub and starts spanking her. And it's so funny because when you tell the story as an adult, it's like a funny story. Like I used to tease my sister all the time about it. I'm like, this is our childhood. But as a two or three-year-old who really just didn't want to get in trouble, I think the only thing worse than like being physically harmed or getting in trouble is watching somebody that you love being physically harmed or get in trouble. And the layers... Because you lied. Because I lied. The layers of betrayal on top of each other, like me betraying my sister, my dad betraying both of us, 
I don't remember what happened after that, but it was, you know, it was like shock. Like I, I remember being like, I take it back. Like she didn't hit me. And then my, you know, my dad's just like, nobody's being logical at this point. It's like, then what the fuck happened? And I'm like, I don't know. Someone hit me, but I don't know who it was. And I'm just trying to like put the pieces back together while also still not wanting to take ownership of what I did. You know what I mean? But it's because I'm fucking two or three. And yeah, I last, I guess it was like pretty much two years ago that memory came flooding back after our trip to Tulum right around the time we were supposed to record our podcast after I started reading a book that Dr. Dan suggested about betrayal wounds. And that memory came flooding back to me and it was just so horrific. Just the whole fucking thing is so nasty. And when you think about it from like that of a parent or that of my sister or that of me, like the whole thing was just fucked up. And I do think as far back as I can remember, that's my first memory. There's a couple of things that come up when I hear that. One is there's research that shows that parents who use aggression and fear to try to control their children are more likely to create liars, Mm -hmm. like people who pathologically lie to avoid that type of uh, punishment. And also lying is one of like, we are the only creature that can purposefully manipulate and warp reality with language. Like, it is straight-up magic. Mm -hmm. And I find that our first memory really sets the tone for our ego's work and the way that our ego will interact through life. Like, my core memory is being admired by my mom doing something creative. And that's such a huge part of my ego is to feel, is to want to be seen by the feminine through my creative work. And that's a part of my ego's work is to contend with that primary imprint that creates like the first story. And yours is I manipulate to avoid responsibility. And even though I see my power, I feel my guilt at that. Yeah. And it didn't stop at two or three. It probably compounded. For sure. From that moment. And I mean, that's that's the other thing my mom would probably say is, you know, if, if my mom wasn't such a graceful person, you know, and you had asked her this 10 years ago, she would just tell you I'm a liar. Like she's a liar. You can't trust anything that she says. And what's interesting is my personal experience with women in romantic relationships who had uh a father who was strong, quote-unquote, but not restraint, and that they feared, what they learn unconsciously is, even though I love man as an archetype, I can't trust men, so I have to control men through manipulation. Totally. And it's this like core defense pattern. That well, my dad was most controllable by me. Yeah. You know, he didn't have... Same with the specific partner I'm thinking of. Yes, totally. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting, and this is something that we probably won't get to in the podcast, but it's just worth noting that, like, you and her have the same body types. And this is something that we've talked about, mm-hmm. is that your primary traumas as children actually of seem... There are some um, schools of psychology that believe that it changes the way you develop... And that your trauma is reflected in the type of bodies you have. 
Definitely. And that this is an interesting side note for people who want to look into that. And the book that I was talking about that helped me understand it and identify my betrayal wound is a book that literally talks about the metaphysical evolution of our bodies based on pretty much how we perceive our wounding through, you know, the world. So rejection right. and, you know, for mine, betrayal. Like I will have the appearance of a strong body, which is that manipulation of that control. But, you know, underneath it, it's constantly looking for how things are going to fuck me over and, you know, possibly needing to just manipulate to like always get out of that loop, you know? So it's never a manipulation to get love. It's actually manipulation to just not feel manipulated, manipulation to not feel manipulated, you know? And that's super vicious. What do you remember being the first story that really grabbed your attention as a child, either a movie or a book or a bedtime story? I, honestly, I think the the movie that I love, like that I watched the most as far as like a Disney movie goes, was like Mulan. And like, let me just tell you, I have <laughs> martyr wounds. For fucking sure. Like, let me suffer so that other people don't have to. And it's deep. And it's I've I've gotten in, I've gotten through ceremony. I've I've seen how how deep it is. Um, but yeah, I loved Mulan. I loved that, you know, first of all, I identified so deeply with the masculine, being, you know, the strong masculine in my family and girls being kind of weak and a little bit useless to society because, you know, if your parent had to go off to war and they were crippled and they couldn't, then like, by God, I'll cut my hair off and I'll fucking go do it. And I used to fantasize as a child about so like saving people. And I, and I still do. Like I will catch myself in like active imagination loops where I'll be thinking about, uh, rescuing somebody from something. And, you know, one of my biggest struggles that I go through now is not trying to rescue one of my clients uh, in a session and download them with conscious information that I've done the internal work to alchemize within myself and to deeply know rather than inquiring, you know, asking them questions where they can inquire within and ultimately come to that answer inside themselves. I love that you're already starting to get into the next question, but to keep pace. <laughs> Imagine that you're in the grandmother energy mm-hmm. and you're telling a bedtime story to your grandchild and say that uh, it's a girl and she's intelligent and she's like nine and she's asking you for a bedtime story. Not from memory, but from heart. With Mulan as the inspiration, can you tell us as if we are the nine-year-old grandchild the bedtime story of what Mulan is? Yeah. I... So start with Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time. There was a girl who didn't understand the things that were going on in the world. And she felt a lot of feelings. And being so young, emotions were the driving force rather than logic. And so she went out into the world looking for answers to not only her own emotions but to other people's emotions because this pain and the suffering that she experienced within herself and through others was just too much to bear. And would I be telling the story of like her going through the whole process and coming out on the other side? There's no wrong way to do it. Just feel that the person in front of you is a nine-year-old grandchild and you're telling a bedtime story and you're using the inspiration of Mulan to 
So there's a character inside Mulan that, if you've seen Mulan, you know. His name's Mushu, and he's a tiny mini Chinese dragon. And he's really funny. Um, And I I would definitely just talk about Mushu being, you know, her spirit guide, spirit animal. Mm -hmm. And this internal consciousness. So don't describe it to us. I'm going to challenge you. Okay. Tell it to us. Okay. Tell us the story of Mulan. So as this girl seeks this exploration to get rid of all suffering in the world, she comes across this small spirit animal named Mushu that is ultimately her greatest reflection of her small self. And through the journey with Mushu, Mushu is one projecting the need to hold her accountable to the things that she says. But Mushu is also the version of her that is keeping her driving in this place of feeling responsible for everyone around her. And so as she decides to go into battle and to really pour herself into the suffering and really trying to create grit and resolution and and reconciliation and all of these things, during pieces of it, she finds that Mushu is nowhere to be found. In some of those moments, it's just her all by herself. And she misses that friend of hers. She misses that person that she can talk to and connect with and remind her of things, but also, you know, be the part of herself that distracts her from some of the work. And so she keeps going through this process. I would tell many stories and many examples about this. And I think the end of the story would be to come to find out that the dance with the ego was what the entire thing was about and that it was absolutely necessary for her to go on that journey, not to rescue anyone else, but to find it within herself to understand that it was never about anyone else. It was about her and Mushu and the journey that they were on together and learning what it felt like to be both without Mushu and with Mushu and without her family and possibly even close to death experiences of without herself. So that when she returns back home to her family, it's not about, you know, I feel like we get caught up in the everything happens for a reason and also, you know, things were right or wrong. And the point of her story was to go through all these experiences to find the neutrality that both, yes, it was probably not a great idea for her to go and that her ego or her, you know, is what pushed her into that space. But that Mulan really needed to have the experience of trying to rescue and find God and love and safety outside of herself. And um, when she returns back home, she has so much wisdom within herself that no matter what path she chose to take, it still gets passed back onto her family and will allow both stories, which we know heal future generations when they're told in truth, and also, um, you know, stories of what not to do and how it could have been done better and more gracefully. Yeah. And then, yeah, hopefully um, she lives a long time. <laughs> say some shit that I don't really believe, but for a small child would be like, she lived a long life um, without any more trauma and it was all peaceful and, and gravy and all that good stuff, but that would be my story. And can you see how that is your story? Definitely. 
What I love about this question is that it feels like I have found a magical question. Definitely. That every single person that I ask, like I could ask 20 people to retell the Mulan story and each of them would retell it in a way where if they loved that story as a child, like you didn't tell the Mulan story. Not at all. You told your story. And there is something about asking the psyche to tell a bedtime story to a child that they love that they tell their myth effortlessly. Mm-hmm. And that one of the ideas that Jung talks about that's so powerful is men don't have ideas. Ideas have men. And until the unconscious is made conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. The stories that we believe create our future because there's an unconscious process in us that's so incredibly powerful that if we've told it, this is what you need to look for in the world. It's like, all right, let's fucking go. And your story that you told sounds like a beautiful ending and not a tragedy, but there's lots of people that you can hear the stories that they tell when they answer that question. And some of them are moving towards cliffs, tragedies. And um, one of the things that I believe is so powerful about this podcast is that the listeners can answer these questions for themselves too. Mm -hmm. And if the ending of the story that you tell is not one that you want, you can change it. But it sounds like you have a beautiful one. I like the story. I've never revisited it or thought about it, but yeah, I definitely makes so much sense why I was so drawn to that as a child. You know, I'm also as an adult drawn to Moana now. So Moana is amazing. It's fucking amazing. Again, what's beautiful is one of the core psychological truths about our experience is that we all feel like we have this whisper. And one of the things that Jung articulated is that the whisper tends to feel like the opposite archetypical gender as whatever you identify with with your body. And so for females, it tends to feel like a male. And for uh, men, it tends to feel like a female in most cases. But what's be- and what, how it's articulated, at least in Greek mythology, is it's called the daemon, that little whisper inside of you. And it was articulated as your guardian spirit. And what's super interesting about most of these Disney movies that have this Um, and it's most clear in Pinocchio, but it's also clear in Mulan, is that your daemon is not all-knowing at the beginning. It's, it needs to be honed. And the way that you hone your intuition is you begin to act on it. And then you give it authentic feedback from interacting with the world, and it grows with you as you begin to consciously dance with it. But if you deny it, if you ignore it, if you disgrace it, if you disrespect it, it can get weak and it can get angry. And one of the ideas that's becoming more alive in me as I study mental illness is it seems like all of our mental illnesses that we've given names to are the different ways that the daemon can become demonic if it's chronically ignored and there's this beautiful quote that at some point i will learn it by heart but it's like 
All of your struggles, all of your suffering, they are for you. They have been made for you to bring you back to yourself. And they've been created for you by this daemon to push you back onto the path. And it will never give up. It will continue to bring suffering into your life until you get back on the path because it loves you. And the way that the quote ends is, um, what else could it do? And it's, it's one of my favorite ideas to begin to play with. And I forgot that Mulan had that too, that it's Mushu. Mm-hmm. Mushu is the thing that at first is immature, mm-hmm. but it's also the thing trying to guide her mm-hmm. towards her dharma, mm-hmm. towards what it is that she's meant to do in the world. Like there's this idea, There's it's called the myth of Air, E-R, that Plato talked about at the end of the Republic. And the way he tells the story is your soul chooses to come here for a purpose, but the act of being birthed into a body, the trauma of it, you forget, but you're given a daemon and your daemon remembers why you came here. And from the moment you're born, your daemon, in the same way that the acorn knows its oakness, your daemon knows your you-ness. And what we interpret as bad luck, what we interpret as suffering, what we interpret as uh, our woes and our obstacles, it's the daemon being like, no, this is not the way. Come back, come back. And it's one of the things I'm the most inspired to do is to help people understand the language of the daemon and how it interacts with you and how it's trying to call you back to whatever your path is. And there's this idea that symptoms are callings. And if we learn to recognize them as callings, as opposed to the etymology of symptom is that it's a, it's two chance occurrences happening together. Like the language that we've chose to articulate how things go wrong implies the spell that it's random that actually robs us of the ability to actually solve it, which is that, no, this is for us. This is calling us. And so I think what I want to ask is, what was your first really dramatic call away from the ego story that was imprinted on you with that first memory towards something different? So what I'm asking is, what was your first big dark night of the soul? breaking up with Tommy, my ex. Um, Can you tell that story? Yeah. I I mean, it's so crazy because it feels like it, I mean, it really wasn't that long ago. You know, it was a year ago. And um, how old are you? I'm 28. And, um... So it just took 26 years. Every no other deal. time that I had ever made a choice, it was, it was a choice to run from stuff I didn't want to deal with yeah. or to just step into a new room and hope that I was a new person. This was the first time that I ever made a decision. Oh man, I know this is it because I'm like so emotional already. So I had had these experiences like what we had talked about where I got on the podcast and I wasn't, you know, I was ready to fucking own my truth, but I, I couldn't because I was in a relationship where I respected that person. And I feel like sharing things about your relationship is somewhat of an equilateral decision in the sense of like, if you go from not sharing things and you guys decide that that's a boundary, 
personally, I'll never be in that relationship again. But at the time, that was kind of our relationship. He was a very private person and he didn't want things shared out, mostly because of our community. And we, we lived in a very religious area. 90% of our clientele's were extremely religious. And there was a lot of things we were doing in our lifestyle that he was super down with, like psychedelics. And we had an open relationship at the time. And But it was not at all was he comfortable with his family or anybody knowing. And for me, everybody in my life knew because I got rid of everybody that I couldn't tell. And I got a whole new gang of people. And so we went to Tulum. You know, this whole podcast thing happened where I think that was right before we went to Tulum together when you and I were there. And it was just tricky because I knew that I knew that I wasn't able to really speak my truth and step into the light and really like own it. And I was also really unhappy with what I was doing with work, but they were all tied together. I had a business with my ex where he, I, he paid me. I did a lot of work for him. Um, our lifestyle was very comfortable. We were super codependent. And I remember having a conversation in my head that said, if you truly loved him, you would leave him because you are what's holding him back even though you have a story that he's the one holding you back. Mm. And I remember getting on the flight, the whole flight home, and I just cried for hours. And the, the flight attendant was just bringing me like packages of Kleenexes. Are you okay, honey? And I just remember being like, I love this person so fucking much. If I didn't love them, I wouldn't leave because it's a really inconvenient time for me to leave right now. I don't have any idea what I'm going to do. By leaving, I risk my life going to rock bottom. But by not leaving, I dishonor our relationship and the love that I say that I have for him. And so breaking up with him truly felt like the first thing that I did in our relationship out of unconditional love. It sounds like it's the first time that you made a choice for you that was mm -hmm. not out of fear or manipulation, but was out of love. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it probably was my, my first decision out of love you know, out of pure love. So share with people what had to happen in your life for you to finally make that choice, for you to actually choose, I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to try to control. I'm going to do what feels right out of love and not try to control the outcome. Like Mm -hmm. that took 26 years clearly for you to even get to the point to make that choice. So for people who are on the other side of that, who haven't been able to make one of those choices yet. Because I'll share my story after you, but my life completely changed when for the first time in my life, I stopped using my mind to make up reasons why not to do the things that I knew I was called to do, that I was afraid to do. And I began to do the things that I was afraid to do. And that moment, and I know that moment, it changed my whole trajectory of my life. So for you... What were the things that happened that brought you to the point where you could actually make that choice? I think, you know, context, like, um, and what I mean by context is like educated awareness, like awareness that leads you back to enough of an understanding contextually for why these things are happening. And for me, it was scarcity. It was that I loved this person, but I was afraid that unless I only love them in one specific way, that there was no other way to love. Like that love was not this abundant thing that you could just get at any time and it was unlimited. It was like, you have to really choose when you want it and it needs to be very specific and it's only gonna fit here. And if it doesn't work out, you're gonna search to the ends of the earth looking for love somewhere else. And one of the things that really shifted for me was creating community of people that were probably very similar and looking for the same thing. And by the time I was able to really walk away from my relationship, 
I had so many people that were filling my cup. And so instead of it being like, there was still scarcity, but I wasn't putting so much weight in one direction. Hmm. And instead I just felt like I, I had a little bit kind of everywhere and not in like a quality over quantity thing. It was more of like, I had, I had really quality people everywhere that was kind of surrounding me. And I, you know, I mean like six of those people, but having five fucking people that you feel love from like genuine love versus one person really shifts your ability to make a decision in one direction. And you say like, it's okay if I, you know, if I cut this line because it's not my lifeline, it's just one line that feeds me and maybe I'll, you know, I'll go down in oxygen by 20%, but cutting that one line like would deplete me and kill me had I not, had I done it before and having that story. Um, and I think just like having enough understanding of the stories that were running in my program, like what they were, I remember having a conversation. So one was community, just having people to be able to take some of the weight, even like, this is what I always say is like, even if you're in a super egoic space right now and you don't even want self-awareness because ignorance is bliss and you're really struggling. If you know that you want to start moving to a direction of self-healing or of wanting to free yourself from, you know, your need to control and like your smaller self, even if you're not ready to do it and you're kind of like, fuck, I'm an asshole. I'm not ready to do it. You're still in it. You're still fucking, you already started your healing journey. The moment that you said, I might not be doing it now, but I want to do it in the future. And you're, you're on your way there. And so for me, I was kind of where I was at was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not looking to make myself uncomfortable, but I, maybe I'll set myself up so that maybe in six months or a year, if I decide I want to make myself uncomfortable, then I'll kind of be in a better position. And that was a very like egoic thing to do. It's, but it, at the same time, it's still like laying somewhat of a fucking foundation, like just movement in general. So that's one thing. And then the other thing was just recognizing like, until I was able to fully own my truth about why I was staying, I would never be able to look at all of those things on the table and go, oh my God, those reasons fucking suck. And knowing that those reasons suck, I can't keep myself in this loop anymore because I know what I know and I know too fucking much. And I think that's why ignorance is bliss is because you can never unknow what you fucking know. And once you know, like... Once I knew that I was saying that the reason I was staying with Tommy was because I deeply loved him. And once I found out that that was one of the 20 fucking reasons that I was staying with him. And it, by the way, had just as much weight as the idea that I felt responsible for his suffering and his happiness and that he wasn't going to find his way out. And oh, by the way, I fucking built that business with my bare hands for three years too. And I'm owed something from it. Oh, and by the way, I'm afraid that I'm never going to find a man that's as good looking as him that takes care of me the way that he takes care of me. Oh, and by the way, you know, and when I was able to and I remember this conversation with him, and this was also a conversation where I realized we were in different places. I said, I want to have a conversation with you where I tell you all the reasons why I'm afraid for us to not be together anymore. And I'm going to tell you a lot of them are not pretty. And I laid out all of the reasons. And when I asked him if he would be willing to share the reasons with me, all the reasons why you want to stay together, like these were all the reasons I wanted to stay together, right? And a lot of them were like, again, like greed, like scarcity, fear, like they weren't like, I just unconditionally love you and I know you're my person and that's my only truth. Bullshit. But he was not ready yet. And so I shared all these things and I was met with, I just really love you. And in that moment, it was like, I know what I'm ready for. I'm ready for a relationship that 
can both hold space for my higher self and my smaller self to be sitting at the same table and the many varying degrees between the two of them that all have their truth. And every one of them has their truth. And there's many. And also to be able to have somebody that can reflect that back to me. Because for me, I could never trust him when I thought, one, when I couldn't see his shadow or I could see it, but I couldn't share what I saw. And two, I can never trust somebody when I know they don't see their shadow. And so I came upon this understanding of like, I am not going to run from my shadow anymore. And I am not going to be in close relationship with other people who are running from their shadow. Hmm. There's a couple of things that I hear there. One is it feels like, specifically for codependence, the first step is to build a community that you feel genuinely supported by, where you then feel the strength to make scary choices Mm -hmm. that before you had the community, if you had made those choices, your animal body would feel like you were exiled, like you were utterly alone. Yeah, like distribute the weight. On on the lowest form explanation, distribute the weight. And what's interesting is like what cults will seek to do and what abusive relationships that are led by sociopaths or narcissists is that they want to disconnect you from any of your community resources. So you have to rely on them. And it seems like that is a insight into human nature that people who seek to manipulate or to control um, another human will seek to cut them away from other people because if people felt supported, they're more likely to act on the whisper. The second thing is it seems like you came to a place of a new depth of awareness that allowed you to see your shadow. And if you're with someone who at the time is either not willing to or unable to share their dark parts, um, at the very best, you're with someone who's unconscious of how they can destroy everything. Um, And in the worst case, you have someone who's actively in denial of a huge aspect of themselves. Um, You're unable to be fully, you know, intimate. Right, because... And this is one of the really interesting things about the research that I have found on loneliness is that one in four people report not having a single close friend and that loneliness is not the same thing as isolation. A lot of people think that isol- or that loneliness means that you're not around anybody, but that's actually not the case for most people. Most people have people around them, but they don't feel genuinely seen by even one person. And people who report being lonely... Um, their chances of dying early are higher than if you smoke 15 cigarettes a day, than if you're an alcoholic, than if you're obese, or if you live in a place with toxic air pollution. But that that can be healed by having a single relationship where you feel seen. And what the research shows is when people feel seen or when people are vulnerable. Mm Mm-hmm. And vulnerability is essentially admitting the things that you seek to hide. And that that is what allows you to be seen. And that's what gives people the opportunity to actually love you. And it's so funny that most of us, because our story that we believe in order to be loved is that we have to present a lie, is exactly the story that keeps you from ever feeling truly loved. Because you're not being seen. 
Yeah, I mean, I for three years and in my relationship, I didn't feel I felt I felt my shadows were seen for sure, and that was part of my my starting my journey of self awareness. But I never felt fully seen, like seen in both my my light and my darkness in a way that wasn't like, there's a difference between someone seeing you like objectively and someone like seeing you and they're like, I see you. You know what I mean? I see what you're doing and I'm commenting on I it. I caught and, you. Yeah. It's and, different between I embrace you and ooh, I caught you. Yeah. And I naturally project on other people that I caught you stuff, which is why it goes back to that betrayal wound. It's like, I'm afraid other people are going to see. So like I've been the one to point things out before it happens so that it's like how fast can I build up my ammo on my end before you start to see my shit? And it's like I have to win because if I don't win, then that means I lose. And for somebody who comes from like a, a betrayal lens, somebody has to lose. Yeah, Young has this quote, where there is power, love is absent. Mm-hmm. And where there is love, power is absent. And if you're... If you feel like you're playing a game that you have to win with your partner, you're not in love. Totally. You're in power. Yeah. That's every relationship I've ever been in. As while I'm single. Hey. Get them. <laughs> so what was the, can you tell us the story of what happened on the opposite end of finally claiming your truth? This and, is my favorite story. And taking an action <laughs> in love. Well, actually, before we get to that, I want to share... For me, um, I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but when I was 26, I had an experience where I was visiting my family for Christmas and I ended up eating an edible and I didn't understand how edibles convert to like, how, like how, how much of an edible equals how much you smoke. And it was fate, but I ended up eating like 180 milligrams of THC my understanding is that 10 milligrams equals like smoking a blunt. Yeah, that's when you want to die, but you know you won't die and you would do anything to die kind of energy for yes. me on an edible. So um, because of the psychedelics that I've done over the course of my life, I used to smoke every day when I was uh, in college and then I started doing psychedelics and specifically after doing DMT, my sensitivity to THC skyrocketed and I only would need to hit a blunt once or um, just one hit and I would be good. Hmm. When I ate this edible, um, to keep a long story short. I'm nervous. I'm nervous even though it happened in the past. (laughs) um, I was sitting on a recliner in my mom's living room and I started to hear three different heartbeats. And I could recognize that I could feel my heartbeat in my wrist. I could hear my heartbeat behind my ear. And I could feel my heartbeat in my chest. And all of them were beating at different rhythms. And a part of me was like, oh, fuck, what is happening? And then there's something about THC that no other psychedelic does where it feels like it hijacks, that fear hijacks my knowing. And no other psychedelic does this. But it felt like I knew, like it was being revealed by God, that my entire life was a hallucination that I was making because I'd gotten into a car accident and that I was paralyzed and that I was in a hospital and that I was too weak 
to accept the fact that I was paralyzed in the hospital. And so I had to sit in that for a while. And then once it felt like I digested that, then the next thought was, or the next what felt like revealing truth from God was that you're in a simulation. You're not real. No one you've ever loved or known is real. And this is just something that's being ran on a computer and there is no meaning anywhere. And then once I digested that, the next knowing was, oh, your conscious awareness, this is the computer. And everything that exists in the simulation is a byproduct of your consciousness. But you aren't a person. You're the computer. And you've just broken it. And then I entered the worst, the most painful experience I've ever had in my life where it felt like the computer that runs the whole simulation is broken. Because it's the whole thing, there's nothing outside of it that can ever fix it. And you're stuck here forever. And it's, and the feeling was this is what people have, to, have tried to describe as hell. And I don't remember how long I was in that space, but eventually I opened my eyes and I realized that I was on the chair and I could vaguely remember that like there's like a house and I'm a person and oh, I ate an edible. And then I realized that I was in my parents' living room and I thought that I was doing something wrong. So I went in the bathroom and then it got even worse. Once I went in the bathroom... Honestly, bathrooms are portals. And if anyone's ever done psychedelics, you know this. It can be a portal to a great dimension, but most of the time it's a portal where things visit you that you don't want to be visiting you. The energy that I went to the bathroom in was fear. Mm-hmm. So it got worse. Oh, man. I, I went to put water on my face, and as I looked into the sink, if you've seen uh, James and the Giant Peach, mm-hmm. the way the rhino storm runs towards the peach I saw this dragon like storm coming towards me and I was just like oh this is about to be worse and for the next objectively what was like two hours but subjectively felt like years I had to process as if I was both the victim and the perpetrator of every trauma that my psyche could feel was true for the people that I loved. So what that means is uh, I had to face the fact that I was raped and that I was the person who raped. Mm. I had to face the fact that I was the one who was beat by someone that I loved and that I was the one who beat someone that I love. Um, I have someone in my family who is gay and I had to accept the fact that I am gay and that I'm also the loved one who hates their child for being gay. Um, I have someone who died of cancer and so I had to be with, you have cancer and you're the person who's angry at the person who is dying from cancer because they're leaving you. Um, I had someone who actually had gone into a coma because he slipped in yoga and smashed his head and I had to be okay with, you are in a coma and you've abandoned your family because you've made a bad choice. And then also being the wife who's angry at the husband. And what I had to do was um, I found the mantra and the mantra was, I love, I accept. And I just had to go through all of these experiences. 
And what's wild is I finally went to bed at some point. And it's like I could feel my brain. I could feel like you just passed a big test. And it's like I somatically could feel my brain was like growing and mm-hmm. was like rewiring, but I didn't really Do you ever feel like your brain is eating itself like but faster than you can talk, eating old parts of itself? I've never had that somatic experience. Mm. Um, I know Wyatt and I both have had that experience, so that's why I was asking. What's wild though is when I woke up the next day, the girl that I had been avoiding on a dating app, I just went on the date and it ended up being an amazing short-term relationship. I applied to on it on a whim that I had been afraid to apply for months, got the job. Mm. I moved back to Austin. I was afraid to drive in Austin because I got into a car accident. And I just kept doing things that I was afraid to do because they didn't feel like anything. Definitely. Compared to the experience that I had on the edible. And all the people who know me before that day, like they look at my life now and they're like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. What oh, yeah. the fuck is going on, dude? Like, we know who you used to be. I answered the call. Right. Yes. And both of these stories that we're sharing is most of us have lived our entire lives justifying running from the whisper. Mm. And, what, and you're about to share your story. When you finally say yes... If you continue to say yes, your life unfolds in a way that the only way to explain it is God's grace. Yeah. There ain't never been a whisper that fucked you up when you followed it more than when you didn't follow it. Amen. So what happened for you after you answered the call? This is my favorite story for sure. And the reason why my ex and I are still best friends and we'll probably be in each other's lives forever Because I had created a lot of stories through my own understanding of unconditional love being something that is, one, not real. Unconsciously, that's what I believed. And also, I have, you know, just like a lot of people, this need to be perceived a certain way, especially by the people that I want to love me. So one of the things that I had been learning about was abandonment wounds and how I knew that my partner had an abandonment wound Um, based on logic and also just things that we had talked about. And I did not want him to perceive me as an abandoner, abandoner of our relationship and abandoner of our business. Um, And also is like our whole lives were tied together. I mean, all my eggs were in the basket of Tommy. And so I was prepared, you know, when when I was getting ready to break up with him, even though he's a really nice guy. The other thing was that in one of his past relationships, he, he actually this is kind of how he always is. He le- he leaves everything for his partner, takes nothing for himself, and then has to rebuild. And I was actually more afraid of him doing that with me and some somehow figuring out a way to leave me with everything and take nothing for himself and the fucking guilt that I was going to have to live with than I was him taking everything from me. So either fucking way, I was like, I'm either going to lose everything and that's going to be fucking terrible. Or even worse, I'm going to get everything, and that's going to fucking haunt me for the rest of my life. And so I picked him up from the airport because he was out of town, uh, and I took him to one of our favorite pizza places. And, I mean, I just kind of told him, like, I know we've talked about this before, that, you know, I'm having uncertain feelings and that I don't think our relationship is as 
is what I is as healthy as it could be, and it feels like we're, neither one of us are moving in the right direction. And I've just come to this crossroads where I deeply feel like we're not supposed to be together anymore in that way, and it makes me really sad because you're my best friend, and you know I I don't know how we're going to work out all the logistics with our business and all of this, but I'm just you know, and for him he was like. I'm very wishy-washy um, in the past with decisions like that, which is like now from that experience I know to be extremely intentional and to the point where when I make a decision, I'm never confused about why I'm making the decision when I make the decision. Back then it was like, you don't know why you're acting the way that you're acting. And so I'm like, ah, you know, I want to break up. And, and he's like, okay, is this, are you like, is this like for sure? Like, is this something that you're for sure about? And I'm like, I'm so sure that I spent the weekend doing mushrooms and MDMA, trying to cope with all of the things that were going to happen. And like, I'm so sure that we're not supposed to be together. And I don't like, I'm just so sorry. And he cried and I just sat there while he cried. And I was just like, you know, at any point I'm ready for him to be like, all right, let's go to the house. Let's get your shit out of the house. And I know he's not going to be mean at this point, but it was like, there's no way that we're going to, like, I got to move out now. Like I have to leave and I have to, do I show up to work? Like, what is it going to happen? And he stopped crying and he just said, wow, that's a lot. And then he kind of kept eating his pizza for a couple more bites. And I'm just sitting there like, almost like, don't tell me what's going to happen next because I'm not ready for it. But also like the anticipation's killing me. And he just says, can we go back to the house and have a good Sunday? And I was like, did you hear what I said? I'm breaking up with you. I didn't say that, but in my mind. And we go back to the house and just like every Sunday, I make us some food. And we watch a little bit of TV. He makes a joke. He looks over at me. He tells me I look beautiful. And, you know, and then he brings me like a Topo Chico. And we're just kind of going through the same motions that we went through in a relationship. But we're clearly broken up. And I know that he knows we're broken up. And he knows that I know that we're broken up. And it felt like the weight that was never supposed to be there to begin with, which was the weight of us trying to force something because we didn't understand that you're allowed to be intimate and have beautiful friendships with people of the opposite sex. And it doesn't mean that you have to then marry them and go up the escalator and spend your life together. And all of this hit me at once. And I'm sitting in our living room and I'm feeling so much fucking gratitude for this person and for the life and for the decision that I made because I almost chickened out multiple times while simultaneously feeling an extreme amount of fear for the future. And then I'm also feeling so much like joy when I look at his fucking face because I love him and somehow I love him more right now than I fucking loved him before I broke up with him. And I'm also feeling a little bit of like you know, more fear on the other end. And I, I just felt like all the emotions that I was experiencing at the same time were coming from every direction and out of me, like these shards of light. And it felt like it was ripping my actual physical body. And I just burst into tears and I cried for like an hour or two. And he just like sat there and he didn't try to rescue me. And he just kind of was like, are you good? And I was like, I'm okay. It's just a lot. And he's like, yeah. And he kind of laughs. And then um, for the next couple of months, actually, we still lived together. And, you know, it was kind of hard. We talked a couple of times about like, like, what if we got back together? Would it be different? And then it's like, no, that's not going to work. And, and then eventually, you know, we were, when we got, our lease was up, we decided to move out and we just started doing the dance of, of friendship and every, all, like I said, all the weight, the weight of like what we, this idea that somehow the own, the best version of us existed in this box over here and that if I disrupt that box whatsoever, I can't have any of the good 
Like that healed for me. And I don't even, that isn't even a part of my myth anymore that resonates with me whatsoever. I genuinely believe that any box that I find myself in, if there's even one little thing that doesn't work in it, I think I can upgrade that box, fix that one thing and have every single thing that I loved and more. And that is now how all of, you know, kind of the, the, the templates of relationships are for me. It's like, what is the top level that you can have with another person? And if the, the answer is unlimited, so long as both people are in truth and both people feel drawn to keep, you know, doing the dance that they're doing. And that's exactly where him and I are. We feel super called to do a dance together as friends, um, not as lovers at all. Also, neither one of us are like, we'll never be lovers again. Like maybe one day we'll be lovers. Probably not. Neither one of us feel called to that. It's just a dance that we really want to do. And it's, it's so important that we know that it might be uncomfortable for other people that are coming into our present moment about our past, but that it's important enough to us that we are willing to not date people that can't overcome their own discomfort in order to like be in our lives. And it's now actually become a new standard because it it's just like, I always make the joke, I'm like super tall. And it's like, thank God that I don't have to weed out, you know, 75% of men that are attracted to me because most of them, they don't even, they're not even attracted to me because of how tall I am, or I'm not attracted to them because of their height. And so now I'm, you know, I'm pulling from a smaller pool, which could feel like scarcity, or it could feel like, you know, deeper alignment and, and just like a better option for me. And I feel the same way with him. If I'm attracting a partner in that's like threatened by my ex that we went through all these beautiful things together and we were pivotal in each other's stories to build our character development and the way that we perceive the world and how much love we have for everyone around us, like I can know that thank you for weeding that person out and keep building. And that's, you know, that's the kind of current story that we're creating right now. One of the ideas that I think it's Neil Strauss that first um, brought it to me is that we have the story that any relationship that ends failed as mm -hmm. opposed to any relationship that continues beyond the point of its completion is a failure. And we also have this idea that if you have sex with someone and then you stop having sex with them, you're supposed to not have them in your life anymore. And it's so odd. So odd. That if someone is your best friend, and one of the things that you guys always did was eat pizza, and you stop eating pizza, and the idea is, I can't be your friend at all. Everything that we've offered each other's lives that have made us best friends, it's over. That there's such a repression and a shadow aspect to sexuality that when that energy is exchanged... And then it stopped. We're just like, you're gone. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's the most beautiful to me about like the current consciousness movement is the potential for transitioning mm. relationships where you change the agreements, you change the commitments. And you're just honest about how deeply you want to be able to connect because that level of sex, sex, you know, for me is a deeper layer of intimacy when we've become so fucking intimate that the only way that we could possibly get any more intimate is for you to be inside my body. And if that's my best friend and I just feel that, it's like I can't, I just, I want more of you, like more presence more surrender with you. And that's what we choose to go do. It could be a one-time thing. And it's not, to me, it's not this thing of like, oh, we shouldn't have had sex. Like we're friends. It would be like, 
we have such a deep relationship that one time we took it as far as we felt like we could take it. The same thing happens in psychedelics. Like I have friends that I have gone through in psychedelics and the intimacy that we experienced in that psychedelic container, I'm not sitting there going, unless we do that all the time or unless we have the illusion of that all the time, mm-hmm. I don't want to do anything else with you in life. Wow. I will just cherish, like cherish the fact that on five grams of mushrooms, we experienced telepathy and I literally could read your thoughts. And not all of them were great thoughts, but I sat there in awe of your thoughts and my ability to connect with you so deeply. And if it never fucking happens again, I will never forget that fucking moment with you and I will always feel connected to you because of it. That's That's the level of sex that I want to have with people is no matter where it goes from there, it becomes the, the thing in our relationship that keeps us pillared into showing up for each other in an honorable way. There's something, and I think about this all the time, we have evolutionary programs in us that are so strong, that are animal programs that have nothing to do with consciousness. And then we have consciousness. And our consciousness is able to make choices outside of those programs if they choose to. But those programs are so strong. And our evolutionary animal programs are the most strong around sex. Because from an evolutionary standpoint, your genes created your body as a vessel for the genes mm-hmm. to do the things that the genes want. And the genes want to recombine and to be brought into the next generation so they're more resilient to viruses. Like the reason sexual selection evolved was so genes could outcompete viruses because before sexual selection, there was just asexual reproduction, which is you just completely copy the entire strand of DNA. And if a virus is introduced into the environment that can hack that genetic code, it wipes out all the organisms. So the idea in evolutionary biology is that sexual selection was created to to outcompete viruses. So we have a body that has a single goal that is directed by our genes, and it's to get our motherfucking genes recombined into the next (laughs) generation. (laughs) And so we have all these programs that we call emotions, like wanting to seek power, wanting to grow in status, wanting to... Uh, use jealousy and anger to manipulate our mate so that our genes feel safe. That if we have sex with that creature, that child is our child. And there's all these programs. And it's like, it's so tough to choose consciousness or to take conscious choices and steps and actions that aren't in alignment with what our genes demand from us. And it's around sex where that's the loudest. And it seems fucking hard, you know, to be able to see what the conscious path is, but then to feel like the anger and the jealousy and the possessiveness and the need to control and the desire to seek, like it's, it's all the wants of the ego. Like the way that I imagine it is the ego is the avatar that is created by the body to maximize the desires of the genes. Then we have soul or consciousness that's able to choose to not act in accordance with that. Like if you choose to take contraception, you are consciously revolting against the genes. 
But what that shows is that that's possible. And it seems like where it's the hardest right now is relationships and sex. Definitely. Yeah, and I mean, it's definitely a dance. I've never thought about the fact that there's certain things that I'm doing by choosing to have a very specific standard for the partner that I bring into my life for intimacy and sex being a way that I'm actually revolting against my genes in certain ways. And I find that idea fascinating for like different things that show up in my body. And I definitely have, you know, the, the very primal aspect of me. It's super rare when it comes out and it's hard because I, man, I think about the repercussions. I think about the repercussions all the fucking time, especially the STD repercussions. That's mostly what I think about when I think about, you know, having sex with someone and um, like that, that I don't feel like is at that level. And it's, it's really just a judgment. And there's, I mean, there's so many, there's so many spaces and sex is that really hard space for me where I almost feel like I've put it on this like hierarchy pedestal thing where the pendulum has swung. It was like, you know, in my early years, I gave it away to people who were not deserving of it. And my, you know, I, they weren't present with me that couldn't show up in divine masculinity that didn't care about my well-being, you know, and then over time you, you start to kind of go back to almost like the biblical terms of, of sex, right? Which I would now refer to as like sacred sexuality, which is less about shame and, and guilt and more about, you know, saving yourself for divine lovers, not a divine lover, but divine partnership in that space where even if it's only for a weekend, I, I really like the idea of entering into the container, a sexual container with intention and then kind of closing it when you're done the same way I do with psilocybin ceremony. I don't just like take psilocybin on a whim in a dirty bathroom in the airport. And then I'm like, well, well, whatever. It's like, no, like I'm gonna do it after I've burned Palo Santo and I'm gonna be really intentional with it. And um, I definitely think my pendulum is swinging to that end until I get enough of those super deeply juicy connected experiences where I feel like I'm meeting God through my partner. And then I have no doubt that at some point it's gonna balance itself out, you know? And then who knows where, what that's gonna look like. I'm open to that being my truth and I don't need to deeply identify with one more than the other. Um, I really just am excited about the exploration of all of it as a whole, but I definitely know which side I'm more on right now. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be the person that would just have like a random hookup right now. And if I come back to that person at some point, like dope, if it's, if it's something that feels divine within myself and it feels you know, honorable and I love the way it feels, it feels good, it adds value to my life, like I'm fucking all for it. I think most people have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to bringing sacredness to sex. So can you tell us more about what that looks like for you? Yeah, and I'll be really honest. I'm super new into it. Um, and so I will not, I'm not going to speak from the books that I've read, but I'm more just from for your experience, yeah, my yeah. own experience. Um, and, and great books are like the David Detta books, that, you know, Way of the Superior Man and, and Dear Lover, and one of those that I'm reading Dear Lover right now. But it's really just this idea that when you... It's, it has a lot to do with kind of self-sovereignty, but also the surrender of being so deeply connected to self that you can then find deeper parts of yourself through another. Like this idea that you have so much intimacy that exists within yourself and so much intimacy that exists within your partnership where you 
have done enough of the work that even if there is still a ton of shadow work to do, which is always, you're at least allowing your partner to do that dance with you. And so letting somebody fully see you um, in every way. And I found out a lot about this when I got my breast implants taken out. As soon as I got them taken out and I started getting sexually active again, I was really confused about, I never had thought to myself, oh, I really want guys to look at my boobs while I'm on top of them because that's the most you know, attractive and aesthetic part of my body that my unconscious mind believes is what makes men attracted to me. And now that I no longer have them in, I'm fucking confused about where I want men to look because I definitely don't want them looking at my scars, but I've never thought about what other part of my body would be the next, like number two aesthetic place to look. Wow. And it was, a, it was a mind fuck. I mean, the amount of, you know, sex for me became shadow work. And it's still, I'm still in that space where there are times where the entire time that I'm in a sexual container with my partner, it's not just like, we're just, it's just like, how many times can they make me come? I'm not even interested in a partner who is needing to know every single time I come because that's the only way that he can feel like he's a man. He's having sex with himself. And he's- Say it again. He's having sex with himself. And- If you're a man- (laughs) And the number one thing that you're paying attention to is whether or not and how many times you make a woman come, you are validating and fucking yourself through another person. Yeah. And to add on to that, because if you're like, well, if I don't care about her pleasure, no, 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 no. Her pleasure comes from the presence that you bring in that moment and how much she can feel connected to herself and to the divine femininity essence that she brings to that container, which is probably why you're in that container to begin with. And by the way, it could be a man and another man. It doesn't matter. One person, it's typically going to take on the energy of the divine feminine, which is the the feminine that wants to be ravished, that feels so safe because of how connected your presence is to her, that she can fully surrender. And every part of her surrender to you brings you both closer to like, I don't want to say God, but to source, to creation, to manifestation, to magic, like actual magic, sex magic. And so, um, yeah, one of the things that, that, you know, I really want is to experience those types of moments. And it's, it's interesting because there's so much wounding that comes up. And in these types of experiences, like I would have shadow work come up. And for me, Sex is not this one thing where it's like, yeah, me and my girl have great sex, which means she's just as freaky as I am. And, you know, we, I can make her come 12 times and she's a squirter and, uh, you know, she, she always gets off and I always get off. And then we high five each other because at the end of it, we felt like we got a good workout. Like that's super cool if that's your desires for sex. And every once in a while, I definitely want to have a great, crazy sexual experience where I feel like, dude, I just, I, that was the workout that I needed for the day. And I just have so pumped with endorphins. And it was more of like a functional sexual experience that feels really good. But sometimes I don't, I want it to be, I want it to be like, every time I go to Disneyland, I'm not going to ride the exact same fucking rides and have the exact same fucking experience. I want to be blown away by the experience. And just like with everything else in life, I want to experience something I've never experienced before that my small brain didn't even know was part of an experience that I could possibly have. I want to be taken to another planet, to another energy, to another emotion, to something so deep within me that I, I didn't, I couldn't have told you to bring out of me because I didn't know it was there. And you can only get to that level when you are in full like surrender. And you can only surrender when you know that your partner is there to hold that space for you. So for me, when I've had these this shadow work come up in sex, you know, maybe that's me struggling for the entire time that I'm on top of being like, 
fuck, like I'm constantly thinking about what he's looking at rather than just like being in a rhythm, you know? And so I'm finding that rhythm. And then every time I try to find that rhythm, I I can't really find it or he moves. And now I'm like, fuck, neither one of us are in rhythm. And I'm, you know, it's like fighting through that. A lot of times in last partnerships, if you, you know, your partner could feel that energy and nobody could be like, hey, like, how can we like sink our breaths right now? Or like, let's slow down and find a rhythm together. Cause I can see that you're feeling a little bit off. And all I really want to do is hold space and connect with you. And that's the kind of partner that I want to be able to have. And it's okay if you're not that partner. That doesn't mean that you're like rejectable by all of society and that every single woman is wanting that exact same thing and that you can't fulfill that need at some point. Personally, where I'm at in my sexual journey though is I wanna be able to one, have space held for me. I wanna be able to hold space for other people and I want my sexual experiences to feel as deep, if not deeper, than the experiences that I have with psychedelics. So when I talk about like my divine sexual, you know, sacred experience, It's like when I'm about to come into a container with my partner and they come over to my house, if I just got off the phone with my ex-boyfriend and we were talking about some shit that happened in our relationship, now is not the time to let this person enter my body while I have my ex's energy in my field and vice versa. You know, if you, and like this happens a lot in the polyamory community, I, I'm, you know, somewhat of like an, I like the open relationship idea. However, if I'm going to be in an open relationship and I want to have sacred sex with my partner or more than one partner, that means pretty much disconnecting from everyone else and having like a really clear intention or like cleansing ritual where if that, if you have other people in your energy field, whether that's friends or your fucking mom, whoever it is, like clean your auric field so that you can be so fully present with this person that anything that does come up, you guys know is y'all's so that you can really hold that space. So you don't have something creep in and you're like, oh, I need someone to hold space for this, but I don't know what it is. And it's actually about my ex-girlfriend and like, it just gets really sticky. And I think in sex is when we're all the most psychic about what's moving in the room yeah. and the most sensitive. Like you could be the the least the person who doesn't agree or believe in psychics or astrology or any of that stuff, but you 100% know that even when your partner isn't talking in a sexual container, you very much are aware of what it is they're experiencing. And I think we've obviously become desensitized by porn and also by women faking it, which if you're a woman faking it, you are fucking up the whole thing for other women to be able to feel like one safe for the sounds that they make and the the moves that they make and how their body looks, but also for men to be able to deeply tap into their psychic ability to understand what's moving in their container in a room. And so I'll never fake it with somebody because I don't want to confuse my partner when I know that he needs to really trust that internal thing inside of him that says we're not as connected as we could be. What's wild is uh, I've had many partners where the first couple of times that we sleep together, um, I have to let them know that I can see that they're faking and that it's okay and that they don't have to. And I've had partners like break down and cry and say that, um, you know, they've been having sex for 10 or 12 years and they've never, that they've always faked it. They've never had a man tell them that they see it and they don't know how to have sex not doing it. Mm -hmm. totally and it brings tears to my eyes to connect to like sex has the ability to be the most healing thing that we can do with another human Mm. but the cultural stories that both men and women are given about sex uh, both of them are lying 
And also what brings me to tears is to connect to when I was a teenager in my early 20s, I did not realize how fucking disrespectful I was being when I was imagining other women while I was having sex with my partner because I didn't know how else to stay hard Mm -hmm. because I didn't know how to connect. I didn't know how to be present. And uh, with my level of understanding of how powerful the unconscious mind is, my partner on some level knew. For sure. I mean, she could feel her. 100%. And it's really interesting. It's since ayahuasca last year, like it healed or opened up something where um, I have never even had the impulse, not even the impulse to think about another woman while I'm with the current woman. Because as a man, if you are really allowing yourself just to listen to what their body is saying, it takes up the whole room. Mm-hmm. It's it's the whole thing. And if like the most deeply attractive partners for me since doing ayahuasca has nothing to do with how they look. Like, of course, there's a baseline of like health that's attractive, but can I feel that they're being honest with their body and their responses? Because then it allows me to respond authentically. And then it allows it to get to a place of that mind melting. But if there's any acting, it gets in the way. Definitely. And like I've had partners basically just not know how to function once that's articulated. I mean, I think that's why my pendulum has swung so far in the direction of I absolutely will not perform and I'm not interested in any kind of performance-based sex because I have performed for so long. And I think there's a there's a place for performance. Like role-playing is 100%. a fucking great place for it performance. It's intentional and chosen. Yeah, and it's honest. Like I'm 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 in my truth when I'm telling you that I'm about to perform for you. And, you know, at that point it becomes like a game. But when it's that you need your partner to believe that your performance is your authentic self, knowing good and well that like you'll have to keep that performance up forever in order for both of you to feel like your needs are met. It's the fucking worst way to start off a sexual relationship. And there's been so many times where I've said I wasn't going to do it and then I'm doing it. And yeah, because we it. have years and years and years of conditioning to do yeah. it. And it gets back to the thing that we were talking about earlier where the only way to genuinely be seen is to genuinely reveal. And if you are hiding, if you are pretending, if you are putting out inauthentic data, you cannot be met. And you feel alone. You don't feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, you can't surrender. And if you can't surrender, you can't experience God through the sex act. And um, this is an interesting side note, but I think what I have found with partners is when they really feel safe to admit, and it might be that this is the type of energy that I give off where I attract a specific type of partner, but all my partners have shame around admitting a fantasy that they have is basically to be raped, mm-hmm. but to have that be to basically be bound and to have, to not be able to perform, Mm -hmm. to not be able to fake and to just be completely taken in a by someone that they trust, you know, like not by a stranger. Yeah. 
And you're and, not, you're not fan, in my opinion, you're not fantasizing about the pain and the, no. it's not that. It's actually, you're fantasizing about the pleasure of not having to perform and to be so wanted without your performance. Right, and that feels like um, that's the dark shadow, extreme expression of trying to overcome this addiction to feeling like you must perform. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really interesting um, pattern that I've seen. And I think it comes from, I mean, fuck, how many times in high school did I hear guys refer to a oh, girl during bed as like, she's a dead fish, mm. you know? And it's like, there's no context to provide that that guy was saying like, I didn't feel connected whatsoever because I don't know how to connect with myself. And she just laid there because I didn't know how to communicate what I wanted. And it's not like we were having conscious sex. So now the truth is that, you know, she's just crazy. She just laid there like a dead fish. And you're like, fuck, I don't ever want to be a dead fish, which means like I got to be on top and I got to be riding him like a fucking horse and like all these things. And it's, you know, you take on this masculinity of like, I have to control the sex now to make sure that I don't get perceived as this thing. And having that kind of stuff come up, that was really like some of the things that led my sexual experiences was feeling like if I didn't take control, I probably would be with a guy who didn't know how to take control. And then I would probably get known as the girl who didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And I was bad at sex and I was no fun, you know? And that's, that is the shadow expression of the divine femininity that wants femininity that wants to be taken, right? That wants to be in an orgasm so deep within herself that she's not even here. She's visiting the fucking stars. So yeah, she's definitely just laying there while you're holding space for her because she has left her body to go visit, you know, the <laughs> mystics. And it's like, that's a very different explanation than she laid there like a dead fish. Yeah. Like, fuck that very toxic vocabulary that paints such a traumatic visual for what divine femininity could possibly be if masculinity could hold the, the container for it. Because what I hear is that the divine feminine in its largest expression is the ocean. So it's not something that's taken. It's something that's so big that it can receive anything. Mm. And that feels like... Um, like that. What the highest version of the divine feminine is able to be in that energy is... I am the ocean. I can receive anything. Do what you will. Do what you want. And I'm mm -hmm. here, you know. And it feels like the divine masculine in that energy is um, rhythmic stability that cannot be perturbed, mm -hmm. you know. Um, to switch gears a little bit, what have you found in working with people now as someone that is trying to help their self-healing, which what we just talked about is a huge part totally. of self-healing. Um, what have you found is most alive in the collective when it comes to trying to help people get to their self-healing? Like what resources feel the most beneficial? Like specifically in your coaching, what are the most common like arch archetypical obstacles or resistance that you see people are currently up, up against? Well, the people that I'm attracting into my community are people who've kind of already started their self-healing journey. And they're just deep in the kind of shitting on themselves phase. Like where they have enough awareness to recognize that they are not 
in divine alignment and that they are creating a lot of their suffering, but that they are very much still in, um, it's almost like a different level of victimhood than your traditional unconscious, like the world is out to get me and like everything happens to me. It's like, I know everything happens for me and it's probably because I'm, you know, I'm not doing enough. And, you know, it's very, very like just harping on themselves. They never doing enough. And then that addiction to feeling like if I do more at some point, I'm going to arrive and having to remind people that one of the things that I'm going to help them heal from the most is the part of them that needs to arrive. Mm. And that is... The part of them that thinks they haven't arrived. Yeah, and that's the part of them that will rob their fucking joy every yeah. fucking time. It's, it's really interesting. At the end of our first year of Fit for Service, um, at our last summit, like once people for a full year had been exposed to the ideas, had started doing the work, a lot of them have had life-changing insights spiritually. Mm-hmm. It's like I had the same conversation with everybody at the last summit, and it was essentially around having self-compassion when you forget what you remembered. Mm-hmm. And that... Or when you remembered what you forgot. The only way to remember is that you forgot. <laughs> but it's that one of the core stages of the hero's journey, One of the, it's the second to last stage and it's resurrection. And the way that I understand that symbolically is you've had the ordeal where you go through the hardest thing and once you get through that, you realize your divinity. You realize... You taste how big you can be when you let go of all the bullshit. But then you have to, quote unquote, come back to the world of ego, to the world of all the energies moving through your body from your genes. You have to be back with your parents. You have to be back in the old patterns that invite the old ways of being. And people who taste how big they could be, they're the ones who are so radically hard on themselves when they forget. And... I probably had the same conversation like nine times and each time I could see people physically relax in their body when I explained this has been happening so much in human history that it's an archetypical step of the oldest story humans have been telling themselves about the waking up process. You forget, but you remember more quickly. And the metaphor that I found, like one of the things I love about teaching and coaching is that other people's nervous systems will unconsciously show you when you're articulating something that's true. Oh, for sure. And the metaphor that I find helps people understand this is if your psyche is an orchestra and your higher self is the conductor and all of your old patterns, all of your small selves are all the instruments that make up the fucking divine symphony of what it is that is the expression of who you are, that to forget is for an instrument to become untuned. A conductor doesn't just smash the instrument or stop the whole symphony because one instrument starts to get out of tune. No, you just tune it. And once you tune it, whenever it gets out of tune again, you become better at tuning. Mm -hmm. You can tune a little bit quicker. Your ear can sense more quickly when it starts to get out of tune. And that the belief that if you fix something that you never have to face it again and that if you face it again, it means you failed... It's the wrong story. Definitely. doesn't work. And it creates more suffering. No. It is an instrument. It will get out of tune at times. But you get better at tuning and better at sensing and quicker at tuning. 
And you know what's funny is like if you did have a whole orchestra in the first time you heard something out of tune, you would have to literally go through every single instrument to trying to figure out which one of them is making that sound. Mm. But the sound you'll never fucking forget. You'll never forget that like that like sound that's haunting you. And if it took you days or months or whatever, you'll never forget that fucking sound. And the next time you hear it, it is muscle memory. And it might take you three minutes to figure out what it is, but you're like, that was the, I know that's a fucking trombone. And there's only five trombones over here. So I know for a fact, it's one of those because I know that sound. And when you bypass the awareness and sitting, really sitting in the discomfort of a moment where things aren't going the way that you want them to and like really listening to how off-tune things are, when you just distract yourself and you just go do everything else you can but listen to that off-tune, you will have to do that every single time because you'll never figure out like what that fine-tuning really is. And that's literally everything we've been talking about. Like the whisper of the soul's calling is almost always like to listen to the suffering. Amen. What is your vision for your life as you see it now? I want to change the way that people see work. I want to allow people to understand that their divine calling in life is enough for not only them to survive, but for them to bring other people farther from survival and more into absolute bliss. And that if everyone was to really tap into their soul's calling, we would all be in a place where there wouldn't be scarcity anymore and you could actually just do the shit that you want to do every single day that's completely fun and filled with bliss and it is not hard work because there will always be somebody to do the things that you don't want to do. And one of the things that has been really hard for me to heal was watching how much my dad and both my parents worked so hard when I was younger and not having financial abundance whatsoever or, you know, really like a ton to show for it, but like the memories. And for me, I built my entire business plan based on what are the things I want to experience? What are the things that I want to experience not only in like fun, like, right. So like, what are the things I want to be able to go do so I can build my schedule around that? So if I want to go to a music festival, I don't have to be like, guys, I can, I have work. Like I own my own business. If I want to go to a music festival and shut my phone off, I want to make sure that my business can survive while I do that. And I want to attract the right people to make sure that can happen. But also what do I want to just do in life? I want to have friends where I have really deep conversations, sometimes in the form of psychedelics. I want to be able to learn about things that I find so fucking fascinating, which is usually learning about myself. And I want to be able to go so deep within my relationships with people that I find deeper layers of God. So I built an entire business for me to be able to experience those things. Because if I can't go out and find them in the world like that, I'm just going to create them and invite other people to enjoy them with me. And it's a very selfish thing to do. Selfful. Selfful thing to do, right? Like that's the thing is like, I'm not asking you guys to come and pay me because what I have is better than what other people have. 
But what I've created for myself is the best thing I've ever found for myself. And if you guys want to be a part of it because you are also looking for that thing for yourself and haven't found it, this is a great place to do so. And I will welcome you with open arms. And by the way, I've created a lot of dope content because I've spent the last year in my business just doing the things that I wanted to do and not looking away from the suffering. So in that amount of time, while I'm living the life that I want to live, I'm also curating content that can be repurposed and that can help other people find what it is in their life that they want to experience learning about themselves and also understanding that they're allowed to have pleasure and joy and do a job that is aligned with their purpose that also pays the money because every single one of us could make money if we were just doing the things that we really wanted to do and we're able to get out of our own ways and able to share and to collaborate and to bring value to one another. What I hear in that is a quote that I love and I I believe it's by Maya Angelou and it's, um, if the book you want to read doesn't exist, it's your job to go write it thousand percent. And what I hear in what you're saying is if you don't have the job that you want, it's your job to go create it. Yes. And that you're allowed to do that. Yes. Let's say that you're at the end of your life. You've accomplished everything that you wanted to accomplish. And you know that you're going to die peacefully in your sleep at the end of that day. How are you going to spend that last day? And who are you going to spend it with? Do I need to make, like, name names? Because I feel like, yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely know who I would spend it with. Um, you know, probably three or four, five people. You would definitely be one of those people. How old are you, by the way? Intuition. My My intuition says 80, but my... Desire says 180. <laughs> Somewhere in between the two of those, I feel pretty good about. But All right, 144. Yeah, I, I feel good about 142. Um, also, not two. Yeah, I think that what I would be doing is floating on like a giant raft, this fucking so many pillows, covered in tiki torches. It's sunset forever. Like sunset doesn't actually, sun doesn't go actually down. Um, But it's not like hot. You know, it's like the perfect temperature. Very comfortable, very cozy. Cuddle puddle. Definitely on MDMA. With the people that I love the most. And just floating on water. That's it. If you could leave a single note to your grandchildren before you go to bed that last night, what would you say? What would you write? I would probably leave them the lyrics to The Dance by Garth Brooks. And then like a little side note that says like something about claiming their own unique dance and the dance that they want to leave for the rest of the world to be able to try knowing that you have your own dance, but sometimes you have to go through another person's dance to find your dance. I don't know, something like that. It would be about dancing though, for sure. Last question. Someone gets to tell the story of Adrian Mm -hmm. at your funeral. What would you want them to say? All of the most embarrassing stories for sure. And I would want them to say 
anything about me that would immediately make other people feel closer to owning their own truth. I don't even care what they say about me. But if they told stories about me that reminded people that I too was a human doing human things and it felt made them feel inspired to go off and accept themselves more before their death came, that would be the fucking best thing. I also don't really want to have a funeral. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a dope, it was a dope conversation. We went from LSD trips all the way to sex to death, and I wouldn't have expected anything less. It's all the same thing. 